When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Our psalm is the 150th. I'm going to make this a little bit of a responsive reading. Anytime you hear praise the Lord, that is the Hebrew hallelujah. So when I say praise the Lord, you say hallelujah. The 150th Psalm. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his surpassing greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Good job. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Revelation in the first chapter, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. From the Gospel of John in the 20th chapter, verses 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, all the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, 
was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did this and many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of you are aware that our scripture readings follow the Revised Common Lectionary. And it's a three-year cycle so that we change it up a little bit from year to year. But some of our, our lectionary readings don't change from year to year, and this, from the Gospel of John, is one of those. Every year, we check in on the disciples locked away in that upper room, afraid to go anywhere, and we take a few moments to snicker behind our hands at that poor Thomas who just didn't have the sense to believe what had been told him. I, for my own purposes, have named this Sunday Pick on Thomas Day. Poor Thomas is known to all history for that one moment of really quite reasonable doubt. Never mind that a couple of chapters ago, Thomas was quite gung-ho about Jesus and following Jesus' mission. And to be honest, for all the flack that Thomas gets on this Sunday after Easter, it takes a lot of guts to leave that room. They were locked away because they were afraid. And yet Thomas was the one brave enough to make the grocery runs or whatever else missions he had to attend to. You gotta give him a little credit, at least on that account. The fact of the matter, though, is that it wasn't just Thomas who had a little trouble swallowing this. All of the disciples experienced doubt. If you go back to last Sunday's readings, you see that when the women return from the tomb to tell the disciples that Christ has been risen, they don't believe that. Oh, come on. You're pulling our leg. You're hallucinating. Calm down a little bit and you'll see what's actually going on here. It wasn't until they saw him that they came to believe. And really, they had a track record of doubt. Throughout the Gospels, there's story after story after story where they just don't quite get the message, where they don't quite 
find the faith to believe in what they are experiencing. Christianity as an institution and eventually as a political powerhouse was tasked and is tasked with spreading the faith, making disciples of all nations. You have to admit that's a little difficult to do when humanity is naturally imbued with a healthy skepticism. But as the faith spread, the power of the church grew. And as the centuries passed, the church became an authority that refused to be questioned. Thus, we came to read this story as a story of failure on Thomas's part. We are told and have been told for centuries that faith must be unquestioning. But here in our earliest witnesses to the Christ event, we find that doubt walks right alongside faith. Faith is something to be questioned. The inclusion of this story, among others, in the Gospels shows that doubt is a vital aspect of faith. Time and again, the disciples doubt. Mostly, they doubt the power of Jesus in their own selves, but occasionally, they doubt Jesus too. But every time doubt arises, it is a teaching moment. It is a chance to reflect on what we know, what we've witnessed, and what we've experienced. It's a chance for us to grow and to blossom. Unquestioning faith never has these crisis moments, whether they're large or small, and thus tends to remain stagnant. When I was still in college, mom had a rose garden in the front of her house in North Carolina, and I tended it every summer when I came home from college. We had gorgeous roses in all different shades, all different scents. I knew the principle of deadheading them in order to encourage more blossoms, but I was reluctant to do any more than that. Eventually, I came to realize that the more I pruned, the fuller and more prolific the bushes became. That's why Jesus refers to pruning the branches and tossing what isn't needed into the fire, because it gives a chance and the energy to grow. We have to have these little cuts if we are to blossom and grow. Now, I know that there is an impression in the general faith community that ministers never have doubts. Well, of course we do. We're human beings, too. I have moments with some regularity where I stop and think, wait, do I really believe that? Those are pruning moments. Moments when I can stop and reach out and touch God. Sometimes I just feel the breath of God's passing on my skin. Sometimes I feel the touch of God's hand. Sometimes I get a good fistful of robe hem. 
And in those moments, my faith grows just a little bit more. And I, with Thomas, confess again, my Lord and my God. If I never had any doubts, never had to ask myself those questions, my experience of God would be far more limited, and I wouldn't grow. I particularly have those moments when calamity strikes and human suffering abounds. And my first reaction is, God's with us. And then my second reaction is, is God really? In those moments, I reach out, and what I touch is the wounds of Christ. To know that even the resurrected Christ still bears the wounds of humanity's sin. I know that God feels the wounds we inflict on each other, and that God's grief is as great as those who suffer most deeply. There's comfort to be found in that. Maybe God doesn't stop bad things from happening, whether those things are part of the natural order or the result of human brokenness. But I can reach out and sense that God is there in the midst of it all, bearing the wounds of Christ. Even when we insist I'll believe it when I see it. Of course, we're long past the point of seeing in order to believe. As Jesus notes a little later on in this gospel, we're now in a time when we will not see what those first disciples did. We will not see a body, a resurrected person, standing in our midst. But those first disciples did not believe the tale until they saw Jesus for themselves. And even then, they were afraid he was some sort of specter, a ghost, until he sat down and ate with them. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, beyond the ascension, with generations and generations between us and those who witness firsthand. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and who believe. He didn't say that to chide Thomas or anyone else for needing visual proof. Jesus said that to us. We who will not see, but who are called upon to believe. Blessed are we. Not because we believe without doubt. Blessed are we because we do doubt. And those doubts make room for us to ask questions, to reach out and touch God, to look for all the ways that Christ is risen indeed in the here and the now at work in our world. It does take a community of faith, though, to learn how to touch God and what it feels like, how we'll know that that's 
what we're experiencing when it happens. There have been in the history of the world very few people who can clutch that fistful of divine robe and recognize it as such without the benefit of the faith community. Because it's something that we do learn from one another. It's something that we help each other do. The community of faith gives us space to ask the questions aloud and explore the answers with other people of faith. Now you may be thinking that there are some churches where that is not true. It is certainly true in this particular faith community, this church family. We ask questions, we challenge beliefs, and we grow in the benefit thereof. Now, worship is definitely a major focus of how we live our faith, but Sunday school and Bible study should be too. Those are the places when we interact with one another a little more, where we push and pull against each other, where the spirit moves in elucidation. Jesus taught in a community of faith. Jesus appeared in a community of faith. And it is the community of faith in which we worship and learn and enjoy God and one another. And yes, we doubt. We make room for the hard questions. We rely on one another to discern what it is to touch God, to touch the wounds of Christ, to be pruned that we may blossom and grow more fully. For God's glory, this day and always. Amen.